I want to take a minute and just lead us through a, a, a time of repentance. Because um, I'm personally convicted. And honestly, I hope you are too. When I sing words like that, if I'm honest, I really don't want the world to see that I'm nothing. I want the world to see that I'm, I'm pretty awesome. And I live most of my life pretty selfishly, hoping other people notice just how good I am. And I come to words that I pray regularly before I open the word, before I, I, I speak what the Lord has put on my heart. John the Baptist's words, may I decrease and you increase. He said things like, Jesus, the one that's coming, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And I hear that, and something in me wants that. Something in me wants to be able to say that honestly. But I know my heart, and there's something in me that fights against that pretty strongly. Because I want what I want, and I want to be noticed, and I want to be whatever it may be in your life. And so I want to just lead us just through a moment of silence where we can just repent if you were able to sing that song 100% honestly from your heart, then you spend time praising and rejoicing. The rest of us are just going to spend just a moment. Lord, I'm sorry. I do live selfishly. I live self-focused. It's all about you. May I decrease and may you increase. So let's take a moment of silence and just from wherever you are in your heart, uh, what is it you need to say to the Lord? Lord Jesus, our natural tendency is to live our lives as if it's about us. It's my time. It's my body. It's what it's the work that my hands are set to. And it's my money and it's my preference. What we read in Scripture the answer that we know is right is that it's all yours. Everything we have is yours. We ourselves are yours. Lord Jesus, even this day, would you move us one step closer to that? That's the desire of my heart, even though my own heart fights against it. Would you change me and mold me? Would you change us and mold us to be people who can lay it all down at your feet and say, it's yours, Lord. Do Apologies for that. So let's jump in. We have been working our way uh, through the book of Mark at a breakneck pace of about one chapter every six weeks. So good news is Mark is the shortest gospel. Bad news is it has 16 chapters. So we'll see how this all breaks out. Uh, as we finished up chapter one last week, um, we spent the last couple weeks focusing on the kingdom authority that Jesus had. 
Uh, it says that when Jesus spoke, when Jesus showed up to a place, people were astonished because they had never seen someone with authority like he had. And if you remember, we said that authority wasn't just in his teaching. It wasn't just that he was such a persuasive speaker that people were awed. It was in the way that he lived and in the kingdom power that he demonstrated. The, the authority that he had over evil spirits, over sickness and the body, over death itself, astonished people and showed them that the message that Jesus was preaching was more than just words. And we started to ask the question, is that something that we can tap into? Is that authority available for us? And the answer is yes. And last week we started looking into that. How, how did Jesus come by this authority, this power, this vision? He always knew where to go. He always knew what to say. Was that just because he was God and cheated? Or was that something that we can have as well? And the answer is yes. Jesus found his authority, his call, and the power to live it out through time spent alone with the Father. If you remember from last week, uh, in the middle of all of this craziness and this crowd is gathering and Jesus goes away to a deserted place on a mountaintop to spend time with the Father. From those times with the Father, he came back full of power and authority. He knew where to go. He knew what to say. And the kingdom was demonstrated through his life. And, and we, we talked about how the disciples picked up on this, and we see them living that out later in their life, where they would find these times to pull away, to get alone with the Father, to hear his voice. And as Jesus said in, in the book of John, he said, I, I only do what I see the Father do. I only speak what I see the Father speak. And we see his disciples learning that lesson and getting away in their own lives and ministries and doing the same thing. And that's what we want to do. And I, I ended... We always ask some questions and kind of have some, some group discussion. And I ended with a rhetorical question that wasn't really fair. Uh, I've had some people come up and talk to me this week and just give me a different perspective on it. And they, they were wise and right to do so. I asked a question that basically went like this. If meeting with the Lord regularly, getting that, that time away to meet with the Father, isn't our normal habit, then we will never experience kingdom power and authority. And if we never experience kingdom power and authority, our community will never see kingdom power and authority. And if our, kingdom, or if our community never sees kingdom power and authority, who will care or even notice if our doors close tomorrow? If the world isn't seeing the kingdom through us, in a way, what good are we as a church? And here's my issue with it. I, I truly believe that if our doors close tomorrow with, with where we are, a lot of people wouldn't, most of our community wouldn't notice for weeks because we're just that church over there to a lot of them. But here's the perspective change that someone gave me that is actually really good and wise. If the people that make up our church were taken out of the community tomorrow, I believe our community would notice. I, I, I fell into some stinking thinking that for the last few years, I've been trying to break myself of and actually break us as a church from, the, the kind of thinking that says only what happens as a church program counts. Only what happens within these four walls counts. And it was a wrong perspective. What, how we live as individuals counts. Whether people see the kingdom in your individual life counts and counts massively. 
Now, do I believe that there should be kingdom change in our community when we gather together to worship and to link arms together to go push back darkness in Elkins? Yeah. And I'll be honest, that's not something we're great at. That's something we're trying to move the needle at. How do we collectively push back the darkness? Show people the kingdom through the body of Christ gathering together. But I think that we are moving the needle as individuals. And I just realized as I ended the service last week, it was on what I hoped was a challenging note, but it wasn't a really fair note because it only gave one perspective. It only showed one side of the coin. So first of all, I apologize for that, especially if anyone was led to struggle from that. I do think we need to do more as a community, as a body of believers, to work together to push back the darkness. But I don't want to discount or just gloss over the fact that as individuals, we are making a difference in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. Are any of us perfect? And man, we got it nailed. Let's just move on. Of course not. But I don't want to discount the difference that God is making through you. So I just wanted to clarify on that because, again, I, it, was, it was a bad perspective from my own point of view. And I just didn't want anyone kind of caught up in that. God wants to show off his kingdom through his people, individually and collectively. He wants to show off kingdom power and authority. And that comes from us individually getting alone with the Father. And that comes from us collectively seeking the face of the Father. We find calling and the power and authority to live that calling out. Make sense? Okay. So that's where we've been. That's recapping. If you weren't here last week, you're probably scratching your head going, what? Why? What's he talking about? It's all online. You can go listen to it there. Moving on, though, we're going to start into Mark chapter 2 uh, this week. So let me read the first 12 verses, and then we're going to go through and break it down. It's a pretty familiar story for most of us. When he, he being Jesus, entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the message to them. Then they came, uh, yeah, then they came, Bringing a paralytic carried by four men, since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above where he was. And when they had broken through, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their face, faith, Jesus told the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus understood in his spirit what they were th that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, picked up the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So let's break this down. One of the things that I'm going to ask you to do a couple times as we work through this passage is just to try to picture the scene. If you've never done this before, especially when you're like reading through the Gospels and it's kind of telling a story, to slow down and actually try to picture what would it have been like to be there? What would it have been like to be Jesus from his perspective, to be someone in the crowd, to be a man being lowered through the roof on a mat? 
So as we walk through this, there's going to be some times where I, I ask us to stop and picture it. And I'll actually describe some, man, what if it looked kind of like this things to you? Now, I'm going to tell you, those are out of my own head. Uh, we don't have anywhere where it says, it, and then they said this to each other or whatever. It's more just going, man, what would it have been like to be there? So let's start by picturing the scene at the very beginning, verse 1 and 2. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the message to them. So this is the place where Jesus had been all through chapter 1. He was in Capernaum. Most people think that at home, it wasn't Jesus' home. Jesus lived in Nazareth, but it was probably Peter's home. The same place where in chapter 1 he, he healed Peter's mother-in-law and the entire village started gathering around them. Jesus went alone onto the mountainside to pray and he said, the Lord told me let's go to the next village because that's why I've come is to preach the kingdom. So it starts by going, after some time, he came back and he was at Jesus HQ. His, the place that he would have called home in that area, which was probably Peter's home. And imagine this, probably block walls, thatched roof with mud to keep the rain out. So it's kind of this old shack for anything that we would have now. But it's packed so full of people that they're spilling out the doorways onto the front lawn. There are so many people trying to push and shove in, trying to peek up over each other. What's he doing now? What's he saying now? The entire area has gathered to this place. The building is exploding out with people. And it says that Jesus was speaking the message to them. What message was Jesus speaking? He was probably speaking the gospel, but not the gospel that most of us grew up hearing. We've talked about this before, and we're going to keep talking about it as we work through the book of Mark. The message that Jesus was speaking was the message of the kingdom. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and one day you can go to heaven and be with him if you believe. A, none of that had happened yet. And B, you won't really find that message in the scriptures. What you will find is Jesus was saying, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. If you look back over in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we looked at this a few weeks ago. It says, After John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee preaching the good news, the gospel of God. And here it was. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The message that Jesus preached wasn't, One day I'm going to die on the cross. Just believe in that and you're good enough. You'll get heaven when you die. The message that Jesus preached and that we find Paul and Peter preaching later in the New Testament is that the kingdom of God has come to earth and you're invited to participate with the king. It was a message about life now and life later. I am never going to downplay eternity in heaven, in perfection, in glory with the Lord. But the message we didn't find was him going, hey, just believe some information, and one day you'll get that when you die. It was an invitation, come follow me, come be like me, come join in the kingdom here and now. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe that. Change the way that you're living and come on mission with the king. So Jesus has this packed out house and he's preaching the message of the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come near because the king is here. 
And just at that time, we see, starting in verse 3, Then they came to him bringing a paralytic, carried by four men. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above where he was. And when they had broken through, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So imagine this scene. The whole area has flocked to this house. And there's a paralytic man, unable to walk. Jesus was already here, it says, some time before. Healing the sick, casting out demons. It could have been that this man missed out on things then because he couldn't get himself to where Jesus was. And now Jesus comes back and this guy refuses to miss the opportunity again. And so praise the Lord, he has four friends who are willing to help. Let's each grab a corner and let's carry him to where Jesus is. Doesn't say where he came from. Maybe it was a couple blocks. Maybe it was a completely other village. But these men grab their friend and they're on a mission to get him to Jesus. Imagine it from their point of view. They turn the corner and there's a roadblock. Hundreds of people packed into this area. There's no way they can get their friend to Jesus. Imagine how crestfallen you would feel. I ha- like if you're the paralytic man, I actually have friends who are willing to carry me. Back then, that was even unheard of. If you were paralyzed, if you were disabled in some way, it was seen as a curse. God was mad at you. And so therefore, people would kind of walk on the other side. They might throw some change at them, but God's mad at them and we don't want to get any of that on us was how those people were viewed. There's a story where Peter is walking with Jesus one day and they see a blind man. And Peter said the common thought of the day, he said, Jesus, so who sinned so that this man would be blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus goes, you have missed the boat. Jesus actually said he was born like this so that the power of God could be displayed in his life. But there was this belief that if you weren't perfectly whole, it's because you did something wrong and God was punishing you. But these four friends refused to leave their friend there. They had this thought, if we can just get him to Jesus, everything will be okay. And so they turned the corner And they find this house busting out onto the lawn with people. Imagine the conversation they could have had. I like to think there was a guy there named Simeon. It's a good Jewish name. And Simeon was kind of a, he thought outside of the box. He got himself into some trouble every now and again. And so maybe Simeon's on the front holding the mat and he goes, boys, I have an idea. There's always two in the gang that are willing to go with it. All right, Simeon, tell us what you thought. And there's always a Thomas. Guys... Every time we listen to Simeon, we get into trouble. We we have to pay fines. We almost got arrested last time. Simeon has crazy ideas. But the man on the mat says, no, 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 let's hear him out. I have to get to Jesus. Let's hear him out. What if we broke through the roof of someone else's house and lowered him down? Whoa, 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 Simeon, slow down, man. You can't climb onto somebody else's roof and just start digging. You get arrested for that. Like, you get in some serious trouble for that. Maybe even the man on on the mat, once he heard lowered down through the roof, was going, whoa, 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 Simeon, slow down. (laughs) Lowered through the roof. But, But he wins out. Guys, trust me. I know it seems crazy. Trust me. Because we have to get our friend to Jesus. 
And so maybe they come up to the house and imagine you're one of the other people. You've been standing there for hours just trying to catch a glimpse of Jesus and you see him stacking some boxes. And they start scrambling up the side of the wall, passing their friend on a mat up to each other. And you're going, what? who are these cheaters? Are they cutting in line? I've been here for hours. But these men will not be detoured. So they climb up onto the roof and they start digging. And now you can imagine you're someone inside. You're Jesus. You're one of the scribes. And the sticks start falling. And you hear the scratching coming through the roof. The, what is happening right now? Is this an earthquake? Is it Rome? What is going on? The little rays of sunlight start coming through as they're, they're getting a hole until finally it's this gaping hole in the ceiling. And you see four heads peek in. And then a man starts being lowered down right in front of Jesus. This would have like arrested everyone in the crowd. Who do these people think they are? What are they doing? Peter's mom is probably like, I did not come back from the dead to have these guys make this mess in my living room. That's my roof. But these men will not be stopped. So they lower him down onto the mat in front of Jesus. And it says, Jesus seeing their faith, not his faith, their faith, the faith of the man's friends, he's moved. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. What did their faith look like? Jesus saw their faith and it moved him to action. Their faith, it looked like a man in need of Jesus willing to do anything to get to him. Nothing will stop me from getting to Jesus. And Jesus saw his faith. It looked like four friends who were unwilling to leave their friend where he was. They would do anything to get him to Jesus. They had this thought, if we can just get him to Jesus, everything will be okay. All I know is when Jesus is in town, things are different. People are healed. People come to life. Things are different when he's in town. And if we can just get our friend to Jesus, everything will be okay. And it says that Jesus saw their faith and was moved to action. It reminds me of a story we'll look at in a few weeks in Mark chapter 5. There's this woman who's been suffering bleeding for 12 years. It says she suffered greatly at the hands of doctors. No one could help her. And she had this same thought. She said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be okay. If I can just get to where Jesus is, everything will be okay. And Jesus saw their faith and was moved to action. When you put this together with a parallel telling of this story, uh, you'll see this story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and they all kind of tell it from a different perspective. In Luke, uh, chapter 5, verse 17, it says this, And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. If you think about it, that would mean there was times when the power of the Lord wasn't present with Jesus to heal the sick. What's the difference that we find between the times that the power of the Lord is there and the times that it's not? The difference is faith. Faith is a conduit for kingdom power and change. A conduit being something that, that things are channeled through. It's a connection that channels one thing 
from one place to another. Faith is the conduit for kingdom change and power. When faith is present, the power of the Lord is present. When faith is not present, the power of the Lord is not present. One of our uh, core values as a church is to live with divine expectation and engagement. We worked through this a couple months ago, and here's how we define that. We want to be a people motivated by and hungry for the presence of God and partnership with Him in transformation. We want to live life with faith that God can break into the everyday moment, and when He does, I'm partnering with Him. What the king is about, I will be about. And the king is always about transformation. That is faith. God, where are you going to show up today? When you do, I'm in. I want to be where you are. I want to do the things that you're doing. I want to be about what you're about. That is faith. I want to live life where if Jesus doesn't show up today, what have I been doing with my life? Because it's all about if I can just get to Jesus, everything is different. Faith is the conduit for kingdom power and change. There's another story uh, in the book of Matthew where Jesus is going to his own hometown and he's teaching there and all of the people are going, whoa, 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 we know this guy. We know his family. I went to middle school with him. Who does he think he is? Coming in here talking about this new kingdom thing. Who does he think he is? And it says, this in verse, or verse 58. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. It actually says, first, he was astonished by their lack of faith. And he was not able to do many miracles. He desired to do miracles. He desired to show off the kingdom and to bring life and change to these people. But because of their lack of faith, he was not able to do many miracles. Now, I hear that and I go, not many miracles. That still means some miracles, and I'd take some miracles. But when you look at how Jesus interacted in these other places with people who had faith, we see great miracles happening. We see the power of God being put on display. Remember what Paul says, the kingdom is not a kingdom of words, but of power. God desires to put his kingdom on display in our lives, and I think even more importantly, through our lives, to those who need him. And that happens through faith. There's this twisted teaching, though. I'm kind of bumping up against a line where some people cross, and it kind of goes like this. So if that's true, then if we have enough faith, God has to heal or move like I told him to, right? If God doesn't, it's because you didn't have faith, which means if you do have faith, God has to, right? It's a prosperity gospel that's out there. God will give you what you want if you just believe hard enough. And it is a lie. And it is an incredibly dangerous lie. That's faith in myself. I can manipulate God if I just trick myself into believing hard enough. Instead of going, if I can just come to Jesus and allow him to do what he does, everything will be okay. But, but doesn't it say in Scripture that if you have enough faith, ask anything and I'll give it to you? Didn't, didn't Jesus teach that? I've heard this put before. Here's the whole teaching of Jesus. John 14, 12 to 14. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. He's talking about when the Holy Spirit comes. We will be able to do even greater things than he has done. 
And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for me anything in my name, and I will do it. So if you believe hard enough and pray in Jesus' name, he has to do it, right? We have a difficult time understanding what it means in my name. Back then, they would have said it. The name was the essence of who someone was. And so to say, if you pray this in my name, meant if you pray according to my will. If you pray in line with me, I will do whatever you ask. And this is part of that getting along with the Father, learning to hear his voice. I believe we will see miracles. We will see the power of God displayed when we learn to come to the Father open hand and going, Lord, what do you want to do in this situation? And when he says, I want to heal, and we pray boldly in faith that he would heal, we'll see healing. When he, say, when he says healing is not what I have in this situation, pray for peace. That we will pray in faith for that, and we will see, as Paul says, peace that transcends understanding. Peace that comes with the presence of God fall onto difficult situations. And this is hard, and that people will be better for it. According to his will, mean, or in his name means according to his will. And here's the thing, he doesn't always will what we want. But he does will what we need. And now you see where faith comes into play. Do I truly trust that if I seek the Father, whatever he desires is best? Be that right in line with me and he wants to move and, and, and fix the relationship or heal the body or, or work in this miraculous way. Or if he says, no, actually, what you need is to remain in this difficult situation because consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kind because those are producing in you maturity, character, hope, and faith. And that's more valuable than taking the easy way out. Do we truly believe that? Because again, let's get back to this story here. Why did the men lower the paralytic man down on a mat in front of Jesus? What did they want? They wanted healing. They wanted their friend to be able to stand and walk, right? What did Jesus give them? Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And we'll read here in a minute, the crowd has, they don't have the reaction that goes, Man, good job, Jesus. You can almost hear the men up on the roof going, no, no, it's his legs. What? He doesn't have a sin problem. He has a leg problem. What are you talking about? Jesus sees their faith and gives them the thing they needed most, whether they knew they needed it or not. He says, whether your legs work or not, your main problem is your sin. Your broken relationship with the Father, and I will restore that for you. The story takes a turn from this point, but I wonder, had everyone just gone, praise God, would that man have still been a paralytic and happier for it? I don't know. But what we see is people reacting differently. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Right away, Jesus understood in his spirit what they were thinking, or that they were thinking like this within themselves, and said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, Get up, pick up your mat, and go home. Immediately, Peter loves that word, immediately he got up, picked up the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus put them to it. Jesus put them in a situation where they had a decision to make. And it's a decision that many of us have had to make or maybe still need to make in our lives. And it's this. You couldn't get away with just going, man, Jesus is a good guy. By claiming to be able to forgive sins, Jesus put them to a decision. They said, whoa, 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 he's blaspheming. There's only one that can forgive sins, and that's God. This man, by forgiving that guy's sins, is claiming to be God on earth. You want to talk about putting your faith to the test. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He has this argument called lunatic, liar, or lord. And he's going, Jesus really only left us with three options of how to, to view him. He's a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's our Lord. In, in Mere Christianity, he says it like this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Jesus decided to put the kingdom on display, but not in the way that they thought. They came going, man, if I can just get to Jesus, everything's okay. And he went, check this out. Your sins are forgiven. And they were blown away because that was too big. No man can do that. Just heal his legs like we asked. What are you doing? And I love it. It's a small thing. In verse 8, Jesus displays the gift of knowledge. The, the spiritual gift that God can bestow on his people, Jesus displays for us. Because again, it's not that he was God and got to cheat and know what people are thinking. He had the Holy Spirit like we do. And we were able to do the things that he did. And he said, right away, Jesus understood in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves. And he called them on it. Why are you thinking this way within your hearts? Jesus knew something he shouldn't have known. Spiritual authority and power. And God has gifted some of us with that same thing, not for our good, but to help bring things to light and move people toward the truth. 
Jesus knew something that by any human means he should not, could not have known. And he says, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your mat, and walk? Listen to the nonchalance that Jesus talks about hearing the paralytic man. Oh, you thought that was tough. Oh, you think it's hard to tell him to get up and walk? Easy. In the kingdom, that happens like that. Jesus is putting the two against each other and going, forgiving his sins is the far greater miracle. Bringing this man back into right relationship with his father is a far greater miracle than simply healing his legs. But so that you may believe, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately, the man pops up, grabs his mat, and out he goes. They came, and I think this is true of everyone in that room, they came seeking the hands of God. What cool stuff can he do for us? And Jesus instead showed him the face of God. I'm going to go even deeper than you could ever imagine. I'm going to heal the thing that you were probably too terrified to even ask for in the first place. And I'm going to restore relationship with the Father. And then, so that you would believe I have authority to do that, get up and walk. The, the miracle was almost just a byproduct. Just a step along the road. So, just so you guys believe, check this out. His sins are forgiven. It was, a, it was a foreshadowing of what Jesus came to do. And so we're going to take time and come to the communion table to celebrate what Jesus did on the cross, which is ultimately celebrating the same miracle that Jesus could look at us and say, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. The greatest miracle known to man has been performed. Because of his death in our place and because of his resurrection, you want to talk about kingdom power, because of his defeating of death, our sins have been forgiven and we can now stand face to face with the Father. So as we come to a time of communion this morning, I don't want for us to be in the same boat of missing it thinking this is just something we do because, man, wouldn't I love to see Jesus do something crazy and going the most amazing thing that he will ever do has been done. And that's why we come to celebrate it. We're going to have a time uh, after communion, after we sing a little bit, uh, where if anyone desires healing, where they can come forward and be prayed for. And I'm, I'll just be real with you. It makes me nervous. Because if God doesn't heal somebody, does that mean that I've been wrong about this whole thing? Does that, oh no, like, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know whether God desires to heal or not until we come and we seek him together. And if he does, I will pray with you in faith that he would heal. If he doesn't, then I will pray with him that his peace is more near to you than it has ever been before. And I will trust him that that is best. But even if God desires to heal, it'll be the second greatest thing we celebrate today. Because what he's already done is more than we could ever hope for. Everything else is icing on the cake. Just get up and walk. Check that out. So let's take a moment and just as Paul says, examine our heart before we come to the communion table that we would never come in an unworthy manner 
And we talk about this all the time. Some of you have heard it so many times. Unworthy manner doesn't mean if you've sinned at all this week, you're now unworthy. If you fought with your spouse on the way in the church doors, you're unworthy. If you've yelled at your child, whatever it may be, that's not what unworthy looks like. Unworthy looks like I know that I've sinned and I'm choosing to hold on to it anyway. We can't celebrate his death and victory over our sin and choose to hold on to our sin. So we want to spend some time going, Lord, is there any sin that I'm harboring, that I'm holding on to, that you're calling me to release? If so, now's the time. Do it. And then let us come and celebrate what the Lord has done on our behalf, the greatest miracle this world will ever know. So let's spend a few minutes just in silence, allowing the Lord to just examine our heart.